Lost in the Middle, America's Political Orphans is brought to you by the American Property Owners Alliance, safeguarding the dream of property ownership. Episode 5, Breaking Ranks, The Joys of Ticket Splitting. Therefore, I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Vice President Ford will be sworn in as president at that hour in this office. Oh, boy. It was going to be a doozy in the Klug household. In the wake of the Watergate scandal, Richard Nixon was stepping down. The Maginot Line had been crossed. Look, I grew up in a mixed marriage. My mom, the Irish Catholic, Democratic daughter of a union railroad worker. My dad, a German Lutheran, Chamber of Commerce, American Legion Republican. To keep peace at the dinner table, politics and the Immaculate Conception were off limits. But the truth is, like many Wisconsinites of that vintage, ticket splitting was rampant. My mom voted for Republican governors, and my dad was a huge fan of the iconoclastic Democratic Senator Bill Proxmire, who served for three decades. But my mom never, ever forgave him for talking her into voting for Richard Nixon. Moments after I finished my dinner plate, I was out the door that night to escape the nuclear exchange that was coming. But when next election rolled around, they shopped like diners in a Chinese restaurant, one from column A, one from column B. This Republican, that Democrat. So, you know, the height of ticket splitting was probably in the late 80s or early 90s. There were lots of voters, especially who voted for Republican presidents, Reagan and Bush, but voted for Democratic members of Congress. That was a very common pattern. University of Wisconsin political scientist Barry Burden. Something like a quarter of voters in those elections were splitting their tickets. So on the same ballot, voting for a presidential candidate and a congressional candidate of different office. Today, ticket splitting has largely collapsed in the House. Listen to this number from 2020. Voters in only 23 out of 435 congressional districts voted for the president of one party and a congressional candidate of another. But in the 22 election, ticket splitting suddenly surged in a number of Senate and governor races around the country. And not surprisingly, it happened in a number of battleground states, the same maps you see in every recent presidential election. University of Virginia professor Kyle Conduct is trying to figure out if the 2022 ticket splitting was a trend or maybe just an outlier. Yeah, you can, you can still find states where there's like a, a huge gap between like maybe a governor and a Senate election in a, in, a, in a given year. Like if you look at Vermont, for instance, you know, Democrats won the Senate race there, replaced Patrick Leahy by like 40 points. At the same time, Phil Scott, uh, kind of a classic, uh, kind of old school Yankee Republican moderate, he won by about 40 points himself. So there's like an 80 point gap between um, Senate and governor. So obviously a ton of people were voting you know, Republican for governor and Democratic for Senate. You saw that in the in in New Hampshire to a lesser degree with uh, Chris Sununu winning pretty comfortably and and, and Maggie Hassan won it, winning by almost 10 points uh, herself, smaller margin than Sununu, but um, still doing quite well. Look, I personally think ticket splitting is very healthy for the country. Voters consciously thinking about their choices, not robotically pulling a lever. We're going to zero in on Wisconsin and Georgia, two very different places, two very different governor-senator races, and not much in common except their best football teams wear a big G on their helmets. I'm Scott Klug. I've been an Emmy Award-winning reporter, a four-term member of Congress, and a federal lobbyist. And like a huge swath of the American public, I'm lost in the middle. This 14-part podcast explains how we got into this mess, where the extremes now pass for the normal. 
And we're going to try to understand when politics turned into a blood sport and gleefully point the fingers at some of the people we think are to blame. And we'll offer up some green shoots of hope on how America can turn it all around. Just a reminder, my name is Madeline. I'm going to be your tour guide and duck driver on today's tour. And we are sitting on World War II amphibious duck, Ida. All right, we are now approaching our first water splashdown on today's tour. Whoa! <laughs> Welcome to Wisconsin Dells. And that's a duck jam with tourists. World War II landing craft that can both drive on streets and trails and also meander around the area's rivers carved out in the last ice age. Here's how Madison's screenwriter and columnist John Roach describes the Wisconsin Dells. It is the default vacation destination for scores of families in Chicago, Milwaukee, Racine, Kenosha, Minneapolis, when they don't have the money to go to, to Disney World. Crazy carny sites, water rides, um, people tour the Wisconsin River in amphibious ducks, which were left over from World War II, and eating cotton candy and go from one tourist thing to the next. And they come away with some beaded moccasins. But the best place in the world to be if you're 11 years old. Absolutely. Full disclosure, in third grade, I got my moccasins and a beaded belt to boot. The Dells has been a tourist haunt since the late 1940s. But all joking aside, today it's a massive economic engine with 5 million visitors a year. Wisconsin Dells sits in Columbia County. It's an area north and west of Madison, featuring a ton of dairy farmers, I'm sure you're surprised, small towns, and collar Madison suburbs. And ticket splitters. Wisconsin's incumbent Democratic Governor Tony Evers and Senator Ron Johnson both faced tight races in 2022. Very different people very different politically, and very different personally. If they made a movie about incumbent Tony Evers, they could cast the late Fred Rogers in the part. A former elementary school teacher with big glasses and a frame so slight a strong wind could blow him to Iowa. In 2022, every incumbent governor, except in Nevada, was re-elected. 28,000 people in Columbia County voted. Evers won by a margin of 1,000. And on election night, poked fun at himself when he won the state by 90,000 votes. Some people call it boring, but you know what, Wisconsin, as it turns out, boring wins. And Mr. Rogers is cool. Incumbent Senator Ron Johnson had the tougher race against Evers' lieutenant governor and one-time Milwaukee activist Mandela Barnes. Often combative, Johnson was defensive about January 6th and firm in his convictions doubting the efficacy of masks and vaccines. But in the end, Barnes wilted under a barrage of attacks. Ticket splitters, experts argue, don't vote for who they like. They vote against who they don't like or they don't trust. He's talking about defunding the police. Now, murder is up in Milwaukee 40%, the fourth highest increase in the country. Mandela Barnes, a dangerous Democrat. Crime didn't work as an issue in many parts of the country, but it sure did in Wisconsin. In Columbia County, it was a squeaker. Johnson won the county by only 450 votes, the state by 27,000. But the big question is, what's in the water in Wisconsin? Aside from ducks driving down the river, ticket splitting seems baked into the Wisconsin DNA. While my family might have been subdued about political differences, boy, not in John Roach's family, parents on opposite sides of the political spectrum, and with five brothers and sisters, the family meals could literally and metaphorically turn into a food fight. 
Uh, my mom was absolutely left of center. She's south side of Chicago. Her mom answered, uh, took book in City Hall before she passed. Her dad was a streetcar conductor on the south side of Chicago. It's the old Irish political machine, which was obviously democratic. My father was a small businessman and what was an ardent Republican, made so especially because he had a sporting goods store on State Street in Madison, Wisconsin. And every time there was a Vietnam War protest, all his windows were broken. And ticket splitting's a family tradition. So it's a puzzle to me, too. Here's the thing. I'm not sure it's rational. As I was alluding to, there might be just this little chip on Wisconsin shoulders where they don't want to give everything to one party. I think there might be something about Wisconsin where there's this common sense thread where they don't want anyone to have too much power. I don't think it's articulated, but if you look some of the patterns, it's like, okay, well, we have this Republican senator, so we need a Democratic one. And we have this, you know, we've had this Republican governor for four terms, so let's get a couple Democratic senators in there. They try to balance it out in a, in a kind of freestyle way. Even the political science crowd can't explain it. It tends to matter most in states like Wisconsin or Georgia, North Carolina, Arizona, where you have these very competitive statewide races. And even a small number of people, 5% of voters or 8% of voters going back and forth between the parties could change the outcomes even on the same ballot. That's University of Wisconsin professor Barry Burden one more time. There's kind of a magic here that no matter what happens with changing demographics, areas of the state growing, other areas of the state shrinking, influx of people from other places, the partisan balance tends to stay about 50-50. There are some pronounced trends. Always Democratic Madison and surrounding Dane County, my former once battleground district, is whatever darkest blue color is in your box of crayons. It's also the fastest growing part of the state. And the dependable Republican Milwaukee suburbs are now purple. The northern third of the state is among the most pro-Trump areas in the country. And in western Wisconsin, the spillover Twin City suburbs just helped flip a congressional seat from blue to red. It's not as though the state is not moving, it's dynamic. There are a lot of political things happening in different directions, but they seem to just offset almost in a perfect fashion. This podcast is brought to you by the American Property Owners Alliance. Our country recognizes home ownership as one of the best ways to build wealth and stable communities. But over the years, support for homeownership has dwindled, and our leaders have lost sight of its value. We're working to change that. The American Property Owners Alliance is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that holds our leaders accountable to safeguard homeowners and communities. Visit PropertyOwnersAlliance.org to learn more and find out how you can join our efforts. Georgia. Georgia. Three decades ago, Georgia was solidly blue. But in 2003, it elected a Republican governor, the first in the state since Reconstruction, who then flipped the state legislature and the congressional districts followed right along. 20 years later, with the explosive growth of the Atlanta suburbs, Georgia is now a purple ticket splitting state. I called an old friend who now lives in Georgia to get his perspective. When I represented Madison in Congress, Errol Davis was the CEO of Align Energy and one of the few black CEOs in Wisconsin. 
Then he found a new passion and switched careers, becoming the chancellor of the University of Georgia system, appointed by a Republican governor, and later superintendent of Atlanta's public schools. He shops around for candidates he likes. I've watched it transition uh, from a rock rib, really conservative Republican area to a, a less conservative and now clearly uh, blue and sometimes purple. If you look at the migration of people here, the state of Georgia has 9 million people. Over 6 million of them are in this area. I grieve for the center. Uh, and I hope, you know, the quiet center becomes less quiet. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I reject excesses on both parts. I mean, I've always, no one has ever accused me of being progressive. Uh, let me say that. Uh, I have, on the issues of, of civil rights, I'm clearly on the left. And on the issues of fiscal uh, prudence, I'm clearly on the right. There are a bunch of voters like him in the wealthy northern Atlanta suburbs of Roswell, Alpharetta, and Sandy Springs. If the Wisconsin Dells parking lots are overflowing with minivans, American-manufactured SUVs with Green Bay Packers stickers, here you'll find Georgia Bulldog decals and luxury brands like Lexus, BMW, and Mercedes, whose U.S. headquarters is just nearby. Average income in Columbia County, Wisconsin, $73,000. Here it's $145,000. Housing prices, $204,000 versus $624,000. In 2022, these Georgia cities voted for incumbent Republican Governor Brian Kemp and incumbent Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock. Georgia Democrats had high hopes for Stacey Abrams in her race against the incumbent Kemp. She nearly beat him in 2018 and had become a prominent national figure and a prolific fundraiser for her own campaign and the National Party. But, like I said, it was a good night for incumbents. Saba Long, an Atlanta communications director and a podcaster in her 30s who leans Democratic, gave Kemp his due. Kemp is a likable guy. When you sit down and talk to him, he's approachable. He feels like, you know, like maybe the guy you work with or your cousin. Um, there's an approachability and kind of salt of the earth vibe to him. Also, his messaging was spectacular. Over the course of his, his time as governor, he has been very consistent on Georgia being the number one place to do business, despite maybe some consternations of some Republicans about he's willing to work with Democrats on things that make sense, not particularly around the economy. And aside from high marks on the economy, Kemp stared on with Trump over his rants of election fraud, gave him credence with independents and suburban women. She consistently lagged in the polls. Kemp got less than 50% in 18. In the rematch in 2022, he got 53%. But if you're a political junkie of any stripe, it was the Senate race that was fascinating. Senator Raphael Warnock, an Atlanta preacher, was elected in a runoff in 2020. Republicans blamed his win on Trump's election fraud claims, which had the dubious distinction of depressing Republican turnout and motivating anti-Trump suburban women. The GOP was amped up for a rematch. But then Trump, eager to prove them wrong and also hell-bent on revenge, pushed beloved University of Georgia football star Herschel Walker through the primary. It is now a great pleasure to announce the winner of the 1982 Heisman Memorial Trophy from the University of Georgia... Herschel Walker. 
But two major issues quickly frame the race. Character and an explicit appeal by Warnock's campaign to swing voters and independents, something rarely seen these days. Well, let's tackle character first. Here's one of my favorite campaign pratfalls of all time, the 2016 presidential race and Rick Perry's duh moment. And I will tell you, it's three agencies of government when I get there that are gone. Commerce, education, and the, um, uh, what's the third one there? Let's see. (laughs) Oh, five. Okay. So commerce, education, and uh, the um, uh, uh, EPA. EPA. There you go. No, okay. Let's Let's stop. Let's stop. Seriously. Now, maybe I can understand that a little bit. There are 438 federal agencies. Let's cut them some slack. But check this out. When Herschel Walker announced for the Senate, he spoke finally of his son. Son, as in singular. But, oops, suddenly there was another son. New at 11, Republican Georgia Senate candidate Herschel Walker is acknowledging a second son. Previously, Walker hadn't publicly mentioned a 10-year-old son. His campaign confirmed the child after the Daily Beast reported Tuesday that the boy's mother had taken Walker to court to establish paternity for child support back in 2014. Walker's campaign says he has supported the child and that the suggestion that he hit his son is, quote, offensive and absurd. And as they say in late-night TV commercials, wait, there's more. One day after admitting to having fathered a second son, Georgia U.S. Senate candidate Herschel Walker now says that he's the father of another son as well as a daughter. Until earlier this week, Walker had only publicly mentioned his 22-year-old son, Christian Walker. Well, this morning news broke of a third son out of wedlock who is now 13 years old and now an adult daughter who was born when he was the running back star for the University of Georgia. Okay, forgetting the name of one cabinet agency is a little awkward, but three other kids? Melita Easters, a Georgia Democratic strategist, could not believe it. I like to say that when the former president designated Walker his favorite U.S. Senate candidate for Georgia, nobody had vetted Walker. When you vet candidates, you like to have them walk onto the campaign trail with a carry-on roller bag. Walker was dragging steamer trunks. And those trunks full of baggage um, scuttled his campaign, especially with suburban women voters. Listen to this Georgia focus group. Here's the background. 11 people who voted for Trump in 16 and switched to Biden in 20. Seven of them are Republicans, two are Democrats, and two are independents. And for the record, eight of the 11 voted for Governor Kemp. Rich Thau runs what he calls the Swing Vote Project in partnership with Axios. Rich is masterful in drawing out what people think. And here the single issue is very clear. It's character. I don't think I felt felt comfortable trusting Walker at all. I mean, as far as his, um, you know, uh, past goes with women. And, and I know you can't believe everything, but I just didn't get a good feeling about it. Walker, um... I mean, the guy has documented split personalities. And I came to the conclusion that, okay, this guy is just not a political leader. I'm not going to put somebody in office who I don't feel has no, no knowledge of, like, politics. 
Clearly, the Warnock campaign was hearing these same themes in its own research. Listen to the language in his commercials directly appealing to ticket splitters. I'm a lifelong Republican. I'm an independent. I usually vote Republican. But there is no way that I can vote for Herschel Walker. The lies and the bizarre statements, I, I just don't get it. I vote for the person, not the party. So I'm voting for Raphael Warnock. He has the best interest of Georgia in mind. Remember early on in the episode, Professor Burden talked about ticket splitting peaking in the 90s. Since I represented a swing district in that era, I routinely ran ads talking about working with Democrats on issues like family and medical leave, which many Republicans opposed. But in an age of vicious campaign ads, Warnock doubled down and pivoted and used the long-abandoned playbook. CNN political commentators were gobsmacked. Things work surprisingly well together. Pizza with pineapple. French fry and frosty. Raphael Warnock and Ted Cruz? That's right. Raphael Warnock partnered with Republican Ted Cruz to extend I-14, connecting military communities in Texas and Georgia. Now, I can't say with certainty that Ted Cruz has never appeared in a Democratic Senate ad before, but Not I, that can't, way. I can't remember it. I don't know what the benefit of naming Ted Cruz is if you're a Democrat in Georgia. No, I know, but what it says to me, it sounds like they're going after independent voters. Smart Politics is Atlanta Democratic strategist Melita Easters, and actually a pretty good message for the body politic as a whole. When we are at gridlock, as we are as a country, then you want to think that there are people who can work across the aisle. And so by dropping the name of a Republican, many Democrats do not like, and even some Republicans do not like, he showed he could work across the aisle. And if we are ever to cure the gridlock, which has Washington at a standstill on many important issues, we have to have people who can work across the aisle. Look, you can tell by the tone of this podcast, I'm a fan of ticket splitting. But Professor Conduct makes the case it might be a nice romantic idea. But if you believe in a party's political philosophy, strong government programs if you're a Democrat, less taxes and regulations if you're a Republican, a split ticket means you never accomplish anything. I mean, yeah, I, mean, I think there's like a certain kind of paint-by-numbers quality to politics now, which... I think for, from a candidate's perspective, it's probably kind of disheartening. If someone says, I vote Democratic in every election because I believe in X, Y, and Z, or I vote Republican in every election because I believe in A, B, and C, I'm not going to sit here and tell that person that they're wrong for never voting for the other party. Because I, there's, there's, there's not necessarily a logical, to, to not the ticket split, it's just that um, I do feel like if if fewer people's votes are sort of up for grabs, it probably makes politicians, particularly if you're the dominant party in a given state, probably are maybe less responsive. Um, maybe that leads to um, more corruption and that sort of thing because people feel like they can never lose. Like I look at I look at Ohio recently. You know, as Democrats have sort of faded as a as a an alternative, you have seen a number of pretty legitimate big scandals, and I would say kind of cocky behavior. But I think what happened in the fall of 22 is a much better model, and I'm not the only one. Here's Saba Long one more time. I think ticket splitters are great. You know, I, you know, I talk a lot on my podcast about the need for uh, competitive districts, uh, the need to reconsider, you know, who's able to qualify as a candidate. You know, you see more and more often that candidates are wealthy. Um, and they're able to put in millions and millions of their own dollars. 
And so for me, a ticket splitter means that you're going to have uh, a more diverse political perspective. And it's not one party drowning out uh, the views and concerns and thoughts of another. I'm all for it. Jennifer is a mid-50s white woman, again from Rich's focus group in Atlanta. I was a a straight-ticket Republican, and I felt that um, the issues and character were at play. And I, I think that Kemp does well on the economy. I think that Warnock has shown um, progress with issues. And so I knew going in that I was going to do a split ticket and that it was different than before. It felt liberating. How so? Well, you know, in the past, I felt like I had to be um, consistent with the party line. And I think we're allowed more these days to color outside the lines. It feels more comfortable to do that, to get, get it right. Absolutely. Think, pause, get it right. Here's the team behind Lost in the Middle. Executive producer Jeff Mayers. Producer Todd Elbaugh. Creative team Claudia Luz and Tony Wood. Edited by Aaron Zummers. Music by Brett William. Production at Civic Media. And a quick thanks to our partners at the American Property Owners Alliance.